I talked to Brother Ernie by chatting over the week, and uh, Grace's fingers are doing uh, a little bit better. She was riding her bike one-handed. <laughs> riding her bike. But she, apparently, uh, one of these fingers, you know, the end of the finger was basically cut off and was just hanging on by the skin. And so they had to sew that back on. And uh, both the ring finger and the pinky finger were fractured. So she, uh, I guess it was in it at church. It happened at church. And it was, you know, church doors that opened like this. And her fingers were in by the hinges. And Elijah slammed the door shut. So it would be Elijah. Because that's just Elijah. <laughs> I, I, I was not the least bit surprised to hear that it was Elijah who slammed the door. He didn't know that she was there. So but he is a, he's a high octane little boy, isn't he? So. All right, well, we've been uh, studying the doctrine of uh, bibliology. And. Uh, just a little bit of review, the ten steps in the doctrine of good, a good doctrine of bibliology. The first step is? Preparation. Preparation, yes. God prepares the hearts of men. And, you know, there's a lot of verses that we could turn to, but, you know, that verse in uh, Isaiah uh, that said, you know, before he was even in his mother's womb, the Lord knew him. And uh, that's a good verse on preparation. I'm not sure if that was in our notes or not. Uh, but um, God, God knows us from eternity past. Now, that does not mean that things are decreed. So, um, the Bible does not teach that every decision we, we make is decreed by God. I, I was listening to a sermon one time. I think I might have even been, it might have even been... Uh, uh, watching it from some preacher in Texas, and you know he did something. He did something like you know take a pen out of his pocket and set it on the pulpit, and said that God from eternity past decreed that I would take this pen out of my pocket and put it on the pulpit. Everything we do is decreed by God, and that you know that is uh, just the most idiotic thing, because then he's making God the author of sin. In the Bible says that God is not the author of sin, and uh, it, it's you have to you have to play some pretty fancy tricks with words to try to make God not be the author of sin when God has decreed sin. But that's what that's what a lot of those uh, people in Reformed theology do, who believe that everything is decreed and that we're we're all just. Uh, you know, pretty much pre-programmed to do what we're going to do, and that there isn't any any free will on our part at all. And uh, uh, we don't agree with that. We believe that God prepares, but at the same time, the responsibility, there's no true responsibility if somebody is predetermined to do something. So... And the Bible teaches that to whom much is given, much is required. So if God says that something is required of somebody, that means there must be responsibility. And uh, so we believe in the doctrine of preparation and then uh, revelation. That's God communicating truth. And uh, 
God has revealed truth that man would not otherwise know unless God had revealed it to him. And uh, um, then after revelation is inspiration. And inspiration is revelation, but it's special revelation. And uh, so that's the uh, uh, God-breathed words of Scripture. And then uh, um, number four then is inerrancy. Inerrancy. And uh, we believe in the doctrine of inerrancy that uh, God's words are pure and true. And so we had started, uh, I believe last week, uh, considering some historical issues related to inerrancy. And uh, we noted that the word inerrancy was first applied to the Bible really only from about the mid-1800s. And before that, the term infallible was, was normally used. Um, I don't know the word, you know, sometimes I, I can't say when certain words were invented or not. I'm not a, an expert on etymology of words like inerrancy and infallibility. But I know that if you go back and you read, if you read books that were written and writings from the, say, the 15th century, 14th century, and, and before that, uh, you probably aren't going to find them mentioning inerrancy. Uh, they just, I guess it's probably because virtually all Christians before that time assumed that the word of God was inerrant. Uh, they were more concerned about infallibility, which we'll talk about in a moment. But from about the early mid 1800s, uh, the B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Warfield, who was professor of Bible at Princeton University, he popularized kind of a new paradigm for understanding the Bible. And uh, he used the word inerrant as opposed to inerrancy, and he, he tried to associate inerrancy with only the uh, non-existing originals, the, the, the uh, original autographs of Scripture. And so soon afterward, then the two terms became thought of as being synonymous. And so it is in many dictionaries today, if you look up, or even uh, um, uh, thesauruses and so forth, if you look up inerrant, uh, they'll often have infallible being uh, you know, a synonym of the word inerrant. But uh, there is some difference when it's applied to the Bible. Historically, Bible believers have always used the term infallible to refer to an existing biblical text, and uh, more often inerrant as being referred to, well, at least since uh, B.B. Warfield, referring to the uh, autographs. And uh, since modern scholars, however, believe that only the lost originals were inerrant and infallible, and therefore authoritative, it's necessary in their minds to find the lost originals, or at least something as close to them as possible, uh, so, so that uh, they have some kind of authority. And in order to get closer to the originals, they employ the naturalistic principles of text criticism. Now, if, we, if you have any old book, say like a copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, uh, and, and there are some of them that I, I think are probably from, uh, in existence from, you know, maybe around the same time, uh, that, that, that the Lord Jesus lived, because it was written before then, uh, 
they, they, uh, they, they want to get as close as possible, but in order uh, to decide what is the accurate, if you've got two texts of the Iliad and they read differently, then, then the scholars will employ certain principles to try to decide which one was did Homer originally pen and which one is an edited copy, maybe some abbreviated copy or maybe somebody tried adding to Homer's Iliad because they wanted to put their words uh, in place of his. And so the principles, uh, there are principles that are used for textual criticism, not just in the Bible but of any, but in applying textual criticism to the Word of God, uh, two British um, scholars slash Anglican clergymen, uh, B.F. Westcott and uh, F. J. Hort, uh, put down three principles when they made the English Revised Version in the late 1800s. First of all, manuscripts with a harder reading, that is, harder to understand, are preferred over those that are easier to understand. Uh, because uh, they think that uh, the, the tendency is going to be for those who make copies to change things that are hard to understand, to simplify them and make them easier to understand. And therefore, the harder to understand is probably closer to the original than the shorter, easier to understand. And, and thus, they, the second principle is that something that's shorter is more preferred over something that's longer because people tend to add to things. Uh, I don't know why, you know, people tend to take away from things just as much, but that's what those guys said. Uh, they said the shorter readings would be preferred over the longer ones, and then uh, see the earlier dated manuscripts are preferred over the later dated manuscripts. Now, um, the one thing that they didn't really say is, uh, it, when they made the English Revised Version, the only evidence they considered was the biblical manuscripts. And there are other evidences. Aside from the manuscripts, there are several other kinds of things. You know, a manuscript being a handwritten copy of the New Testament in Greek. And uh, some of the other evidences are translations. That would be a, a translation that's not in Greek, but it's maybe in the Coptic language of Egypt or in the Syriac language, like the Peshitta. Come on in. Come on in. So uh, some of those translations are actually uh, much older than many of the manuscripts that they use. You can come on in, Brother Matthew. We're just uh, talking about uh, about uh, the Bible and the doctrine of bibliology. So, uh, we, uh, just to let me review for your sake, uh, that's okay. Oh, yeah, we can close that. So, so the uh, doctrine of the Bible. Um, have, have y'all heard much teaching on the doctrine of bibliology before? The doctrine of bibliology, I have not. Okay, so the, in the doctrine of the, the Bible, under what the Bible teaches about itself, there's really ten steps to a, a, a right understanding of the Scripture. And uh, we've been going over this for the past several weeks. Step, the first step is preparation. Uh, God prepares the heart of the human authors that He would use uh, to write the Scripture. And uh, uh, one of the things that uh, um, I, I talked about before is 
many people, when they uh, when they talk about uh, scripture, they all often say, "Well, Paul wrote this," or "Ezekiel wrote this," something like that. And uh, I think that's a poor understanding of it, uh, because yes, they may have written the words, but Paul didn't. He wasn't choosing what he wrote. Uh, he, Paul wrote letters that are not inspired. We know that from the scripture. Uh, he wrote letters that were not inspired, and uh, but the, the portions of thing of the, the writings that he made that were inspired are are uh, because of inspiration. Now, uh, preparation just simply means that God prepared a person to be the one uh, to be able to write that scripture. And uh, we could make the analogy that you know if I had a Smith Corona typewriter, you guys probably never typed with a typewriter, did you? But we used to when we were in college. We had to, you know, that was before PCs and computers, and so so we actually had to have computers. And and uh, you might have an IBM typewriter, or you might have a Smith Corona typewriter, or some of these other typewriters. And uh, you know, back in the day, forensics experts then could look at the the font and the text on that uh, on that typed paper, and they could tell you which kind of typewriter it was because everyone typed a little bit differently. And uh, so that's how, that's how Scripture is. Uh, John's writings and Paul's writings seem just a little bit different, but that's not because they, excuse me, that's not because they were deciding what, what needed to be written. It's simply because God was using them at that time. And uh, so the first step is preparation. The second step is revelation. That's God revealing what man couldn't know apart from God revealing it. There's a lot of things we'd never know. If God hadn't revealed them in Scripture, we, we, we'd never know about them. We'd never know about God. Now, revelation, there's natural revelation when, when the, the psalm says that even the firmament declares His glory. And the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament's His handiwork. And so when we look at this world and the precise order of it and how everything is so uh, perfectly synchronized, we can come to the logical conclusion that there was a God, that there is a God. And uh, then, uh, then there's special revelation. Special revelation is what we wouldn't know apart from God revealing it to us. And that was done by the Word of God. And so the third step then is inspiration. Inspiration is that which is God-breathed. And uh, um, there's a whole lot to say about inspiration, uh, but uh, I'll just uh, forego that for now. And we're on the doctrine of inerrancy. That's the fourth step, inerrancy. So inerrancy is that the Word of God is pure and true. And every word of God, when, when it was originally given, it was pure and true. And uh, so, uh, but over a period of time, men, uh, because of our sinful hearts, uh, wanted to become judges and set themselves up over God's Word. And so they uh, came to apply that doctrine of inerrancy only to what was originally given. And uh, they didn't believe in, in uh, preservation, which, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, anyways, we're talking about the principles that were used to by the uh, um, men who made the English Revised Version in the late 1800s. Uh, they said that the manuscripts with harder readings are preferred over those with easier readings. Shorter readings are preferred over longer readings. 
and earlier dated manuscripts are preferred over later dated ones. So just to give you an example, if you had, a, had two Greek copies of the New Testament, and in one of them, in Mark chapter 16, the chapter ends at verse number 9. And in the other one, it, it goes on to whatever Mark goes to, I think it's chapter 7, or verse 17, something like that. But uh, all that about, all in, if you look in a lot of Bibles, even if they're King James Bibles, they'll tell you there'll be a footnote on there that says the best or the most authoritative manuscripts do not contain these verses. And so now you have many Bibles that have simply ended the chapter at verse number 9 and don't even put those verses in with a doubting footnote. They've simply taken them out of the Word of God. And uh, it's because there are some Greek manuscripts that have those verses removed. Now the reason those manuscripts have those verses removed, in some cases, it's because those manuscripts are not written in a book form like this, they're a scroll, and the pages would be sewed together. And since that was the last page, what happened? It fell off and was lost. And so there was no malicious intent to remove those verses. It simply is because they fell off. And, but in other cases, it was, you know, because those are the verses that talk about picking up snakes and, and drinking poison and not dying and so forth like that. So they didn't like the uh, um, supernatural character to them, the promise of divine protection, divine supernatural protection for the apostles. And uh, so in some cases, those verses were taken out, uh, usually by the Gnostic uh, people uh, in, in uh, um, North Africa. And uh, so uh, that's why those, those verses aren't there. But today, most Christians have abandoned the, the traditional text that's been used by Christians uh, for over 1,500 years and instead are using Bibles that are derived or translated from a text that Westcott and Hort created in the 1880s. Uh, that text didn't exist anywhere in the world before then. What they did is they took these, these corrupted, mutilated manuscripts, and really only about six or seven of them, and they, they picked and chose what they liked and didn't like, and they made a Greek manuscript based upon those corrupted texts. And that manuscript doesn't read the same as any of those or that, that text doesn't read the same as any of those manuscripts. And uh, today, <coughs> the, critical, the critical Greek text is in like its 30th edition, which means that about every 10 or 12 years, uh, different Greek scholars who, who uh, I'm not really sure why or you know how they have the power to do it, uh, but they come out with an updated critical Greek text and uh, the one that is in use today is actually made, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy, but he's a German scholar uh, and he made it in the 1930s, the mid-1930s and then he became a Nazi and he helped 
put many hundreds, maybe even thousands of Jewish people to death. Uh, so that, that is the, the Greek manuscript that was used for all new translations for the NIV, for the New American Standard Bible. Uh, it was it was done by it was done by a German scholar who who was an anti-Semite and put many uh, uh, Jewish people into concentration camps where they were killed. And uh, people don't know that, but that's that is uh, in fact a, a true thing. And uh, I, it's probably been revised a couple of times since then, but they're still using his work. And uh, I don't know why you'd want that guy handling your Bible. But in any case, that that is very different from what Christian people use. The manuscripts that that uh, manuscript being a handwritten copy of the Bible in Greek, and uh, the the manuscripts that that uh, the King James Bible is translated from uh, is is from that maybe there's about five or six thousand Greek texts of the Bible, handwritten uh, copies of the Bible that. Uh, what scholars did uh, back around the time of uh, of Desiderius uh, um, Erasmus, uh, he was he was a Catholic uh, um, scholar at the same time as Luther, and uh, he 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 made one of the first uh, Greek manuscripts that was what you would call a collated manuscript. In other words, he took many Greek manuscripts, about 15 or so that he had access to, and where it was obvious a page had fallen off or where it became too faded to read the writing, uh, you know, he, he could look at other manuscripts and he could decide what was right and what was, what was uh, you know, had been lost. And so uh, he made uh, the manuscript then that it was edited a little bit more, but by the time of about the mid-1500s, um, it pretty much became what is called the traditional text or the majority text or the uh, textus receptus, the received text. And that's what the King James Bible is translated from. Um, so uh, inerrancy goes to how those manuscripts, which manuscripts are used and, and things like that. Uh, the homage that that rationalistic humanistic science uh, has over faith, it leads to a lot of problems. A lot of problems, and you've got hypocritical statements by seminary professors, and even in some independent fundamental Baptist institutions. Uh, I recall when I went to graduate school in the uh, um, late 1990s, a professor, uh, one professor saying to us that, you know, he was a little bit surprised that there were some of us in, in uh, grad school that had not studied Greek and Hebrew and didn't, uh, didn't you know, didn't really, uh, weren't able to open up a Greek New Testament and, and read the Bible in the original Greek language. And, and just kind of in a derisive way, he's sort of like, you guys don't even know what the Bible says. And, uh, you know, I pointed out to him that, you know, the, you know what that sounds like? I said, I, I heard Muslims say that if, uh, if you can't read the, the Quran in Arabic, then you don't know what, the, know what it says. And uh, 
I said, that's, that's saying that that language can't be translated, which is ridiculous. I understand that there are some things that may be every nuance. I'm sure there are things in Korean and in um, Portuguese that, you know, if you say it in English, it maybe loses a little of the nuance. But, but, but translation is possible. Translation is possible, and, you know, where you can, you can get the meaning across even without it. And where it isn't possible, it's usually not a really critical doctrine. In other words, for God so loved the world, is translatable. There isn't a lot of nuance there that can be lost in translation. And uh, so you have the seminary professors that say they believe in verbal inspiration, but at the same time they don't believe that anybody has an infallible Bible. If you don't, if you don't believe that this is inerrant and infallible, which we're going to study next, uh, then, then what good is inspiration? Because inspiration is the guarantee of inerrancy, and inerrancy is the foundation of inspiration. So with, if we don't believe that the Bible was originally inspired, it really isn't any different from believing that God couldn't preserve His Word. And we haven't really gotten to preservation yet, but uh, inerrancy is, is uh, believing then that that God gave His Word pure. And then number five, the fifth step, would be infallibility. And that's the characteristic of the Word of God as being totally authoritative. Totally authoritative in both the autographs, that's the originals, and in the autographs or the copies of the originals. Because there are no originals left. Uh, we can't find, like the when, when the Apostle John wrote the Revelation, there's... You can't, we can't hold up this and say this is what John penned with his own hands. And it's a good thing that we don't because if we did, people would worship it. <coughs> there was a time uh, when uh, uh, I think uh, Joshua destroyed that brazen serpent that Moses had made. Or actually, no, I think it was uh, actually Hezekiah that destroyed it because the people were worshiping it. And uh, it wasn't made to be worshipped. It was made uh, so that people would look to it in faith and be saved. And uh, so uh, we believe that the Word of God is both inerrant and infallible. And uh, if you want to say it this way, the originals were inerrant without error. And the, and the, uh, um, or the autographs, the copies then, continue to be authoritative um, because of the inerrancy. And so they're, they're totally trustworthy. And uh, there's, there's a few verses that we'll look at here, and then we'll probably have to close for today. But every time you read in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord, that is infallibility. Every time. If, if you've been uh, reading the devotionals that I write, almost, you know, you can't hardly find a chapter in the Hebrew prophets in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel where it doesn't say thus say the Lord, because that's what they were doing. They were preaching what God told them to preach, and so they said, thus saith the Lord. It wasn't thus saith Ezekiel. When you pick up a commentary, the, the, the commentaries say, well, Ezekiel thought this, and so he wrote this. But 
Ezekiel never said that he thought this and wrote that. He said, thus saith the Lord. And there's a big difference. And so, uh, but uh, just look in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, well-known passage of Scripture. We'll read verse 17 too. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And uh, this, is, this is a good passage talking about preservation, but it is also a very good passage talking about um, infallibility. Uh, Matthew chapter, uh, or John, excuse me, John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 35. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Uh, so maybe we should have read verse 34 for context. Jesus is answering the unbelieving Jews. He said, it's not written in your law. Uh, ye are gods. That's, you know where that is? That's the 82nd Psalm, I think. Let me look. Yeah, I have said ye are gods, and all your children of the Most High. Uh, so, you know, in this case, uh, uh, <clears throat> it's a reference to human rulers. But um, these are just a few of the verses. John 17, verse 17 is, is another a good verse for infallibility. Um, Sanctify them through truth, thy word is truth. And uh, so, uh, a lot of verses that talk about the authority of Scripture, we believe as Baptists, our first distinctive as Baptist people is in the, the authority of the Word of God. We believe in biblical authority. Now, you know, I suppose the Presbyterians, I don't know, you know, uh, in, in their Westminster Confession of Faith, they pay a lot of homage to biblical authority, but uh, often they define the Bible by the Westminster Confession of Faith. In other words, uh, whatever the Westminster Confession of Faith says we believe about something is how we believe it, not what the Bible says. And uh, so we believe in biblical authority. And uh, we will talk more about this doctrine of infallibility and uh, really the, some of the historical aspects about it uh, next week when we return. And uh, hopefully things get even better. They raised the uh, ease of restrictions a little bit, so we can have 10 more people here. <laughs> Without, uh, But I don't think we're going to have any problems anyway. So, um, But uh, pray for uh, our members who are... You know, in the military, the Hubbards and the Cooks, because the, the commanding general of the armed forces, U.S. armed forces here, put everybody in a stay-at-home lockdown until Tuesday, and so they, they they have to stay in their homes until then. So, but we get to go to church, amen. So we'll just, uh, we'll, but they'll be watching. They'll be watching. They'll be joining us online. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thanks.